Tonight, as we continue our journey here in this amazing book, we'll take the first seven verses here in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation, this amazing vision that John receives while he's incarcerated on the island of Patmos off the coast of modern-day Turkey. He's in a cave. He's staring physically at a wall of rock, but he sees the glories of heaven. And we're now beginning to shift and transfer our our view. Chapter 4 was the worship of the Creator. It ends with this incredible picture of Creator God, Jesus who has by the word of his power, created everything that exists in our entire universe. Everything that we will ever see, ever know, was created by him and for him, and without nothing that was, was there created anything. It all exists because of Jesus. You exist because of Jesus. We exist. This church exists. Chapter 5 now moves on to worship the Lamb who was slain. But before we get to that picture, by the time we get to verse 5, we we pick up two prophetic windows that are so important for us as we look at the truth of God's Word. You see, very often people look at the words of the book of Revelation and they isolate them almost entirely to the future. But it was really in the past that these words were initially authored. Jesus has been the lion of the tribe of Judah and known as such for almost 3,500 years. If you can do some quick math, that's 2,000 years longer than he's been Savior on this earth. He's been known as the root of Jesse, since David was announced as the one who would inherit the line of Judah. And so tonight, the worthy one. Let's pray. Father, we have come again uh, in awe of the majesty of your word. Lord, the truth that's contained within it, Lord, as we look at these words on page, or this ink that sits before us on this parchment paper, Lord, we realize they're more than just words. In fact, they're truth, and they are alive. And so, Lord, we ask for that truth that is alive now to enter our hearts and our minds and to take up residence there. Because indeed, Lord, you are worthy. You are the worthy one. And so, God, we give you this time tonight. Speak to us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 here in Revelation 5, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written, on the inside and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. It's extremely important, again, to recognize and to see what's being said here. Traditionally, a scroll would be written on a single side. And normally, as it was rolled up, what was then visible was the backside of the scroll, which would contain nothing. So you got no preview of it. In this case, the scroll is written on both sides. And it's a picture of God's purposes being from times past, and available and utilized in times present. And so as this scroll is unrolled, it has to have consistency in the past and in the present. And so as these, this scroll is unwrapped, you'll notice it has seven seals, seven obviously being the number of completion. But it's going to go on to remind us that this isn't like a regular scroll. It has one seal on it. It, in fact, is sealed with seven seals. And each seal must be opened ahead of the seal that's behind it. And so these seals are very sequential. And we'll begin to get to those seals as they are opened in chapter 6. And so we're now looking at the Lamb who was slain. And here this amazing picture again of the throne room of God. 
and the Lamb. The scene is in heaven. We have before us the Creator, and now we get a different picture. And then I saw a strong angel. The phrase there in the original language seems to indicate this is possibly an archangel. And that archangel is now going to proclaim in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And it's extremely obvious who this actually is to us in the here and now. But it would have not been so obvious in that time that John was writing. And so the strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, Who is it? And John sees and and begins to ponder these things and thinks on it. He somehow knows, because chapter 10 will tell us that he knew, what was about to unfold. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and the phrasing that's here seems to indicate any created being, and it doesn't matter whether that being is angelic or that being is human, No created being was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. In other words, these words were sealed by the Lord himself. They were closed up. And if you remember, Daniel received a vision of this. And it said, seal up the vision until the end times, the last days. No one. And so John, seeing this, wept much. And as he's weeping, we're given the reason for why he's weeping. For no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll to look at it. But one of the elders, we're not told which one, one of these senior saints, whether it was one of the prophets whether it was one of the New Testament saints, we're not told. But what we are told is one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And mark and underline these two phrases because they are two separate phrases. They are two separate prophetic windows. They are two different pictures, but they are of the same person. Has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so as this picture unfolds before us, we find this amazing heavenly scene. And as the scroll is in the hand, obviously, uh, of God. God secured that document. No one can change its contents. God, remember, is immutable. He changes not. His character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't come up with a plan that worked 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, at the very beginning of creation, and then alter his mindset about that. What he said in times past is perfectly true today, and all that he has said will come to pass. And so this scroll is a picture of God's plans. And they are a picture of God's plans that yet tonight, as we sit here, they are still future. One of those scrolls is all that is taken, all that's necessary, all that's needed to map out Uh, the end times. And as it's unrolled, these successive seals come. And as you opened up the scroll, part would be on the back and it would come forward on the right side and part would be on the front and it would come forth on the left side. And so unlike a modern scroll or a scroll, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it would only have writing on one side as you unrolled it. This is so important. It's contained on both sides and it represents God's plans being completely unchangeable and the breaking of these seals ultimately as we get to chapter 6 will release the first horseman of the apocalypse and so we're about to come to that time when we begin to see the very last days of man's sojourn 
uh, here on earth. I'm going to take about two seconds here. And I'm going to do this because it's driving me crazy. It's flashing on and off. And so there will be no PowerPoint notes. Oh, that's interesting. We're going we're gonna to show it from the other computer. Thank you, Stuart. You don't know how I knew that, but I just assumed. <laughs> and so here, once the scroll begins to unravel, no one, you notice, on heaven. There isn't a human being. You remember what Jesus said? No one knows the day or the hour, but only my Father in heaven knows. Who has the scroll? It's God the Father. And so this passage Jesus spoke to 2,000 years ago that no one was going to get to know when that time is. So when somebody tells you, well, I know when the tribulation is going to start, irregardless of how much information they may have about the Old Testament feasts or the blood moons or anything else, Scripture says that no one knows the day or the hour. Now we can have some pretty good indications of what the times and the seasons are, and I believe the times and the seasons are close. But if somebody tells you a week from next Tuesday, uh, you're going to see the Antichrist unveiled, you can be pretty sure that they're wrong because Jesus said that no one would know. Who is worthy? Who is this worthy person? No one was able to do it that was a human being. And so we get to verse 5, and this is where the story begins to become uh, very, very, very clear to us. And it begins with, notice what verse 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, for behold, and now we get a picture of the worthy one, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has prevailed. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, he came of his own volition. And when he went to the cross, he prevailed. He conquered sin and he conquered death. Amen? He defeated death. He defeated sin. He crushed just exactly as Scripture declared he would. He crushed the head of the serpent. The serpent still causes pain and anguish. He afflicts people, but he is a defeated foe tonight. Amen? Amen. Our Savior reigns. And so this picture is the one who is worthy, the one at this time. Scripture begins to unfold him for us. And as you look through your Bibles, as you travel through the Old Testament, you can turn to the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Widely accepted that it was physically authored, and when I say physically authored, actually penned on parchment, to the ink to the parchment, at least 1400 B.C., at least. And so as this was penned, these are the words of Moses primarily, and as Moses authors the first five books of the Bible, the book of Genesis being the book of beginnings, as Moses authors this, as he gets near the end of the book, we have this prophetic window, this picture, in Genesis 49, picking up in verse 8, and it says there, Judah, and remember the context, Judah is now going to pass on the patriarchal blessing to his children. And he's going to speak to them about their future going forward. And he's going to give them a picture of what Abraham was promised. Remember the promise went to Abraham that through you all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so as he says those things in verse 8 of Genesis 49, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. And remember, Judah means praise God, in essence, or Yahweh, from whom, or for whom, or to whom, for he whom Yahweh is praised. You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. For Judah is the lion's offspring. Judah is the lion's offspring. It's kind of a strange title, isn't it? Well, unless you realize 
looking forward what was being said some 1,500 years because indeed the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior, the Great I Am would come from the line of Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. Remember Jesus' picture in the New Testament. By the time we see him as a prophet, Isaiah spoke in 686 B.C. as he authors the words of his amazing testimony about the coming Messiah. He said he would be despised so much so that the world would look upon him as one who is undesirable. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. For he bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Who's going to stir up the lion? You know, it's not a wise thing to do. It's never worked out well to rouse the lion. But one day, and I believe it will be soon, the lion will be roused. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so this is a direct reference to the second coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because it tells who's going to give obedience when he comes. It's the people. It's the Jewish people. It's the one to whom the gospel came first. It went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The Messiah was rejected, despised by his own people. And so it says, until Shiloh comes. So this picture of this prophetic blessing comes to a nation that did not at that time even exist. Judah did not exist as a nation when these words were spoken. Judah was a person. Judah was a single man. But they would become a redemptive nation. They would become the one through whom the Messiah would come. Before Jacob now is this large canvas, and, and we would ask ourselves, you know, when you, when you have a blank canvas, you, you can put anything on there that you want. What would he paint? What would we see? And the first thing that that is sketched on there as far as Jacob is concerned, is his son Reuben. Reuben is the one to whom the blessing should have passed. He's the firstborn. He's the strong one. He's a natural leader. He's a recipient, if you will, of that double portion. But Reuben was morally bankrupt. Reuben was corrupt. He was unworthy of becoming the leader of this new nation. He was reckless. He had unbridled license. He was filled with lust. And so it would be to Judah that that lot would fall, the national leadership. And it would be from Judah that all of the Hebrew kings would descend. And notice it's told specifically to him at this time, from you, there will not cease to be the scepter ruling. Well, there hasn't been a king in Israel, in a very long time. But there is one who is the rightful king, isn't there? And though the king has been rejected, the king is still the king. And so that emblem, that symbol, and notice the elder's vision now, stop weeping, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now remember that those elders represent both the Old Testament saints and the New Testament apostles. They represent all of those who have believed by faith in Messiah, in, in the Savior. And so he is the sovereign king. Later in history, when the tribes of Israel went to David, they expressed their recognition of him as the person that God had chosen as that king. And it, it says there about him in, in Second Chronicles, when previously when Saul was king over them, he, he referenced that time. And by the time you get to Samuel's two letters in Second Samuel chapter 5, you remember that Israel went out and went in, and you said, you will shepherd my people and rule over Israel. And so all of the elders came 
to the king, to King David at Hebron, and made a covenant with them before Hebron, and they anointed King David over all Israel. And so it was sealed forever. The Davidic covenant was placed on the tribe of Judah. And the person of King David, that would continue. And by the time we get to chapter 7, he shall build a house for my name, speaking of God, speaking of David simultaneously, and establish the throne of his kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. And so the fulfillment of that promise goes out and is kept in exactly one person. And that one person is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah, And it's referenced in Genesis chapter 49 by a singular name, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is, in essence, a, a shorter version of Shalah, which means to have rest. So until the rest bringer comes. Do you remember what kind of kingdom the Messiah's kingdom is supposed to be? It's a kingdom of rest. And in fact, the Jewish Targums, especially the the Onkelos, the the last of all the great Targums, the commentary on the first five books of Moses, it says of this passage, until Messiah comes, to whom is the kingdom? So even the Jewish people understood that when Shiloh came, the bringer of peace came, that it would be David's reign would be reigning through him. That he would still be that tribe of Judah. And he would be the lion of that tribe. Isaiah would go on to finish this picture for us in Isaiah chapter 9. For he is indeed part of that amazing picture. He's not just the wonderful counselor. He's not just the mighty God. He is also the Prince of Peace. Until Shiloh comes. And so as John is seeing this picture unfolding before him in this cave, as he's looking through heaven's windows, and he's staring into the throne room of God, what he's really getting a picture of is is the heavenly scene that was brought forth in our world on this planet when Jesus came, as the author of Hebrews would remind us in Hebrews chapter 4. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 9 says in Hebrews 4, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. Remember, Christ is creator, and he's rested from those works. And then it goes on to say, as God did from his. Notice how there's a separation between the creator and God the Father in that verse. Christ rested, and therefore... Let us be diligent to enter into that rest so that no one will fall by following the example of disobedience. In other words, Christ brings rest as we give our lives to him. We've been justified by faith, and because of that, Romans 5 says, we have peace with God. The Hebrew Messiah, the Christian Savior, is the bringer of rest. He's the one that makes sense of this crazy world that we live in. And so this scroll that's wrapped up really is a picture of many things. But it contains within it the answers to many of the things that mankind is asking right now. You see, we're coming up on another presidential election year. And there are many hoping that our next president, no matter who it is, will be the bringer of rest. They'll somehow fix the economy. They'll somehow fix the social problems that we have. They'll somehow bring back the greatness of the United States of America. Though we should live no other place. This is the greatest country on the face of the earth. The answer is not going to be found in the next president of the United States. Because your Bible says that things will wax worse and worse and worse, and the church itself will even fall away, and then the end will come. 
So as we begin to look forward into that time that is tonight yet future, we have to ask ourselves, when will that rest come? You see, the giver of rest stands before each one of us tonight. The giver of rest speaks to each one of you. If you're a believer, he is your rest. One day you're going to enter into his kingdom of rest. And he's going to say, well done, enter in to my kingdom of rest. He's the answer. Remember Jesus in John chapter 14 spoke these words. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world do I give to you. Not as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be fearful. For I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you might be also. He was speaking of this same time that John is now seeing. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming, folks. One day our king is coming back. And he is the rightful deed holder to this earth. He is the supreme lawgiver. And he absolutely is our king. And he's coming back. so amazing when you think about it because as you travel to Israel today you'll find that there is no royal palace there's not a temple on the temple mount there are three mosques but this passage that we looked at in Genesis not only predicts the tribe from which the Messiah would come but also the royal line from whom all the kings would descend and so by the time you look at all the pictures in the Old Testament speaking of the tremendous detail of the coming Messiah that he would be born in Bethlehem that he would grow up in Nazareth that he'd be born of a virgin that he would be crucified that he would be shunned that his beard would be plucked that he would be uh, humiliated all of the things that speak of Jesus down to Daniel's prediction of when he would actually arrive as Messiah, that he would in fact ride into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. All of these pictures, the chance of one person being born from one single tribe of the 12 tribes and announced almost 1,500 years before that event happened, if you just plot some simple mathematics, take 25 of the 485 prophetic windows you find in the Old Testament. Take the ones that are most pertinent to Jesus. The things that are clearest that no one would debate with you. You begin to multiply those out and just the law of compound probabilities that that one person would come from the tribe of Judah. You're going to end up with a number it's 1 in 281 chances times 10 to the 26th power. To give you an idea, if you were to cover the United States of America with sand, and that were the number of grains, it would bury every mountain range. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one that's worthy. It goes on to say, the root of David there in Revelation chapter 5. Notice the second thing that's said about the one who is coming. Isaiah 11 is the picture that's given there. Again, John sees a picture of what's already been said about Messiah. The coming one. Who is this one? Isaiah 11 verse 1, and there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Where did Judah come from? The stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And it goes on to say, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and gives this incredible picture of who this one who would come from Jesse, but the stump of Jesse. 
the leftover remnant. So here in Revelation chapter 5, we have confirmation about what was said about the Messiah. As we read it tonight, 3,500 years ago. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, for his delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth, shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips shall slay the wicked. That scroll that is in Father's God, Father God's hands are the directives to slay the wicked. That's what they are. That's what the beginning of the tribulation is. It's God saying the end of the age of grace has come. Mankind refuses to turn. And so it is now time to release my wrath upon this world so that all Israel can be saved. And so this messianic message, though it is one uh, that's comforting to us, it's also one that we look at and we go, you don't want your friends to be here. When that scroll gets cracked, when that first wax seal, you see at that day and time when someone sealed the scroll, normally it was with a very thick wax. That wax was heated. The candle was then melted onto the scroll. Normally there would be a ring, a signet ring, or a signet block, and that signet block would be pressed in there. It was a sign that whoever wrote it, wrote it, and what's behind it is there, and it can't be altered. Your Bible says that one day... The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root, the stump of Jesse's remnant is going to open that scroll and from it he's going to judge the earth. As Isaiah wrote those words, he was speaking of a manifestation of a, of a divine being. You see, when Messiah would arrive some 700 years later, when Isaiah wrote, he wrote in 686 B.C., Messiah would come almost to the day, 700 years later. And when Messiah would come, no doubt the prophet had in mind that promise of Second Samuel 7, that a stem, a stump, would birth forth Messiah. Because by the time Jesus came, the children of Israel were a ragtag band. They had entered into the land. They had been disobedient when they reached Kadesh Barnea, they had traveled with Moses, and in disobedience they went in and spied out the land, said, we're not going, and finally Joshua brings them in. And they're told to conquer the land, leave no one, and yet they leave the, the Midianites, they leave the Gibeonites, they leave sin intact in the camp, and that sin eats up the camp. It begins to rot its way through the people of Israel. And by the time they ultimately come to that time when Jesus is walking the earth, uh, they're hardly even a nation. They certainly have no visible sense that they have a king. They're being ruled over by Herod the Great, an Idumean. So their king isn't even a Hebrew. So it couldn't be out of that stump, because as far as Scripture is concerned, the only king that the Jewish people can have is a Hebrew king, from the line of Judah. In 70 AD, when the Roman emperor-to-be, but then the, the general of the Roman army, Titus, when he comes to Jerusalem, lays siege to Jerusalem, eventually sacks Jerusalem, destroys it as Jesus stands on the temple mountain, he says, Oh, I would that you would come unto me, but you would not. And because of that, there will be not one stone left untouched on this mount. What you see here today will not exist until Shiloh comes. That was the reference he was making. Look, I'm coming back. And so from that time, what was inside of the Sanhedrin, to the south end of the Temple Mount, that long building, was in essence the records of the children of Israel. They were burned. So anyone born after 70 AD cannot prove their lineage and heritage in Judah. So the Messiah had to come prior to that date. There was only one person left, 
And his name was Jesus of Nazareth, whose lineage could be traced to the great King David, because there was only one of Jesse's sons uh, that was the forebearer of all of the kings. And that, of course, was David. It was not Herod the Great. And so out of that stump would spring forth, just exactly as Isaiah 53, 2 says, like a root out of parched ground, out of dry ground, he would come. For he has no stately form, no majesty that we should look upon him, the prophet said. There would be nothing special about Jesus. No one would look at Jesus. You remember his coronation when he came into town, when he came to Jerusalem? He came into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, exactly as Zechariah 9.9 would declare. No pomp, no circumstance, no jewels, no robe. His robe was likely what we would call burlap. Like a root out of dry ground that we should look on him, nor his appearance that we should be attracted to him. When Jesus came, when he was crowned by their people, do you remember what they said on that day as he rode into Jerusalem? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were announcing he was king. One day later, we do not want this man to rule over us. Exactly what they did with Saul previously. We we want a tall king. We want a handsome king. We want a strong king. We don't want this David guy. We don't want this Jesus. There's nothing about... He's the root out of dry ground. He's the stump. Isn't he the leftover lunch boy? And so because of that speaking into David's life and that speaking into the life of those who would come from his lineage... In 2 Samuel 7 and verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in the place of their own. And no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them as previously since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people. So as David is announced king, I have cursed you to rest from all of your, caused you to rest from all of your enemies. And also the Lord tells us, tells you, that I will build you a house. Now remember David wasn't allowed to build the house. Solomon, his son, would build the house. When your days are fulfilled that you will rest with your fathers and I will set up, notice this, the Davidic covenant, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish my kingdom in him. Jesus came from David. The lion. The stump. And then the final picture. Notice what is now said. Pick up with me in verse 6 in Revelation 5. And I looked. So he's seen to this point. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the stump. He is the remnant of Jesse. He's of David's line. For I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, remember these angelic beings who are praising the Lord, they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Here in the midst of this one holding the scroll, and remember now John is weeping, he said, Who is worthy to loosen? There's nobody in heaven, there's nobody on earth, there isn't anybody, not even Satan, if he got a hold of this, is worth, he could not have the power to open the scroll. It's in the hand of God. And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood the Lamb as though it had been slain. Do you remember what was said of Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was made our Passover for us. Stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having noticed this strange picture. You paint this out, this is a, this is a crazy looking lamb. 
seven horns and seven eyes, which are, and we're told what they are, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And then he came, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is the root of the stump of Jesse, the one who is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Amen? The lamb who is slain. Jesus became our sacrifice. It was his life forfeited for yours. He represented that Passover lamb, the very same thing that happened the night that the Egyptians came upon the children of Israel as they were beginning to flee. It was Passover Eve and the lambs were supposed to be slaughtered and the blood was put on the doorpost and they were put on the lintels of the home. And if the blood was there, then you were passed over. Your sins were espunged. The lamb who was slain. So we know who this worthy one is. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so here we see this amazing picture of this lamb and these seven signifying points that are made on each of these three items. They all show the same thing, that they are the completeness of those things. And so the horns symbolizing strength, they represent authority, they represent power. The same picture is in Daniel chapter 7. We'll see it again in Revelation chapter 13. The eyes representing the the logos, the intelligence of God. God is all knowledge. God can't be taught anything. He can't learn anything. He's not surprised by anything. He doesn't wake up and, boy, I wish I'd have known that 24 millennia ago. God is consummate, total, complete knowledge. And the spirits, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in full measure, in complete operation... That incredible picture of who we are. And so this one is worthy. There's only one worthy one to begin the end. He is the Hebrew Messiah. He is our Savior. He alone, as Jesus said about himself. Do you remember what he said at the end of Matthew's Gospel? All authority in heaven... And on earth has been given to me. To him. He's the only one. He's one of one. That's why Colossians says what it says. He is the preeminent one of all creation. That's why he is I am. He is the uncaused cause. He has no equal. I feel sorry for Christians that believe that You know, Jesus and Satan are somehow equal, and one represents good and one represents evil. Christ, with the word of his mouth, could cause Satan to vaporize. He could end this right now, tonight. When he says it's over, it's over. And one day he will command Satan, your time is up. I'm binding you in chains. The bottomless pit is where you're going. And so he is the final authority. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Again, another picture of the triunity of God. There's one throne sitting on it as God the Father and three persons in essence in this scene. Jesus comes now. And begins to do this work. And this principle that we see in play here. The message of the book of Revelation. Is that God one day is going to resolve everything that we right now are struggling to figure out. Why in the world did he allow that? Why, Why did the Holocaust have to happen? Why is that? Why is it that right now almost exactly half of the world's nations are at war today. Why is, why is there cancer? Why do two-thirds of the world's people go to bed either malnourished or hungry? Why? Christ is the answer to those questions. 
and not one bit of it is escaping his gaze. And when the Lord finally says the last person that will ever be saved is saved, the last person to come to him before the the end comes has happened, then he is going to unleash all that is necessary to make sure the world never goes here again. We have had rulers throughout history that have tried to put their place, tried to be the worthy one. Adolf Hitler believed he was going, the Third Reich was a thousand year reign of the Aryan people. He and Eva Braun uh, ended up in a barbecue. Didn't work out so well. But boy, did he wreak havoc on the world. Go a little closer to home. You may have remembered one of the things that occurred during the Gulf War. In 1982, something that most people don't know, Saddam Hussein began to rebuild Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And as he rebuilt Nebuchadnezzar's palace, he had over 60 million bricks pressed. And on each one of those bricks, it said, in the era of Saddam Hussein, protector of Iraq, who rebuilt civilization and rebuilt Babylon. He died at the end of a hangman's noose. Oh, he thought he was going to rebuild Babylon. He thought he was going to rebuild civilization. The Babylonian civilization was a wonder. The hanging gardens of Babylon are still one of the ancient wonders of the world. The pharaohs no doubt thought the same thing. All one has to do is gaze at the pyramids at Giza, travel to the valley of Luxor, and go, you know, these are some pretty smart dudes. They're no longer with us. The Roman Empire at one time stretched to northern Scotland. To this day, you can go and travel down the top of Hadrian's Wall. But the Pax Romana died. The Greeks believed that they would bring culture to the entire world. And instead, the tiny nation of Greece right now is the most indebted nation that has existed ever in the course of human history. Who is worthy? It ain't the UN, I can tell you that. It's not our president. It's not going to be a government solution. It's going to be a God solution. No leader in the world has a clue how to solve all these great problems, but I know the one leader who does, and his name is Jesus. For those of you that are fans of the Chronicles of Narnia, the reason that he picked Aslan, the lion, was because he represents the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the picture he was trying to paint. Who is worthy? Do you remember what the lion did? He laid down on that giant altar and allowed himself to be killed. But what happened? Death couldn't hold him. He was raised up. And he fought the fight. And he won the battle. That same lion is coming. So remember, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. His humanity, you would look at him and nothing to be desired, but he is the absolute only person left that holds the scepter, that holds the law between his feet. And some 28 times we'll see here in the book of Revelation, he is the the lamb. When we get to chapter 6, we're going to see the wrath of the lamb. Isn't that a hard word picture to come to terms with? The wrath of the lamb. His little, you ever seen a lamb? Not exactly scary. But now imagine that that lamb has seven eyes and seven horns 
and is drenched in blood. A little different picture. The church, we are actually called in chapter 19 and chapter 21, the bride of the Lamb. Chapter 7, we're going to see that the world will be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Who is worthy? Who's the worthy one? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of the stump of Jesse. And the Lamb who was slain. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, tonight we cry out, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Lord, we recognize you as the sole authority over all of the universe. And Lord, it is to you that we bow tonight voluntarily in allegiance to the one true King. Lord, we thank you that it was your blood that was spilt for us. Lord, for us, we have already benefited. We have gained eternity because your life was forfeited for ours. And we pray tonight if there's anyone here, anyone that's come and they've heard these words and pondered these things in their heart, they've come to that place to where they realize that they need to do some business with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You wait, Lord, for them. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this scroll that will be unwound one day, beginning with that first scroll, the white horse, Lord, the rise of the Antichrist. Lord, you want no one to be here for that event. And so, God, tonight the age of grace continues. Speak your truth into the hearts and minds of those who are lost. Maybe one tonight. God, we thank you that you alone are in control of the universe. Lord, sometimes it just doesn't seem like it. But there is a worthy one. And you do have a plan. And you've had that plan from before the time that this world even existed. So, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the promise. Lord, these other promises have come true. Lord, these other prophetic windows have been sure and yes and amen. You, in fact, were born from the tribe of Judah. Both Joseph and Mary from that tribe. And so, God, we bless you. We thank you for the truth of your word, for the consistency. Lord, for what you speak to us through it. God, we don't have forever. And so we may we make tonight count. We bless you. We honor you. We praise you. And we cry worthy. Lord, as the angels cry worthy, we cry worthy. Lord, bless us as your people. Strengthen us for the days that are ahead. We ask these things in the mighty name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus, who is Messiah. Amen.